Saturday. It's February 17th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. I'm Michael Haney in New York City. The world outside may be governed by gravitas. There's so much going on in the news, but here on Morning Meeting, you can sleep easy knowing that we are only going to talk to you about Truman Capote, ESPN, and one other thing I forgot. <laughs> what is that third thing, Michael? I'm here. I've got it. I've got it. I'll, I'll tell you what else we've got. We've, as, as you know, we've got a fantastic show. If you've been watching the Lunar Series feud, Capote versus the Swans, as I know Ashley has, you know by now the famed writer betrayed every one of his friendships with these women. Yet, as Joseph Rodota will tell us, there was actually one swan Capote did not betray. And he'll tell us who she was and why. Then, speaking of feuds, Kurt Wagner has the untold story of the lengths to which Twitter founder Jack Dorsey went to sway his company's acquisition in favor of Elon Musk. How did that go? And on the subject of the rise and decline of media properties, our own Bill Keenan has the crazy story of how a father and son created ESPN, sports programming's North Star, on what was basically a wing, a prayer, and a chunk of Getty oil cash. And then they walked out with almost nothing to show for it. So Ashley, there's all three stories. Where would you like to begin today? Maybe Truman Capote isn't exactly the most newsworthy character, given that he's been dead for decades, but he still lives very much in our hearts and minds, thanks to Ryan Murphy's feud, Capote versus the Swans. We have yet another story about it in the issue this week, and Joe Rodota is here to explain where his loyalty really began and ended. Joe is a California-based writer and a producer and also the author of The Watergate, Inside America's Most Infamous Address. Welcome, Joe. <laughs> So, Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you because you've got this fascinating wrinkle in your story about how Truman Capote, as sort of horrible as we think he is as a friend, there was actually one swan he didn't betray in the end. Can you tell us who that was and how she managed to escape his wrath? Her name was Catherine Graham, and she was the publisher of The Washington Post. And they met in 1961, interestingly, through... Babe Paley, one of the most uh, famous of the swans. Paley one day asked Catherine if uh, she'd ever met Truman Capote, and she said she hadn't. Catherine's sister, a photographer, did know Truman Capote. And so Mrs. Paley set up a lunch, and uh, the lunch was, it must have been amazing. The lunch was Truman Capote, Harper Lee, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, Babe Paley, and Catherine Graham. And from that moment on, Mrs. Graham and, and Truman Capote became friends. And the relationship continues and takes an interesting twist in 1965 when Truman Capote invites Catherine Graham to join him on a yacht cruising through the Adriatic Sea and the Greek islands. The yacht had been chartered by another swan, a European branch of the swans, Morella and Yelly. And the two of them cruise the Adriatic. And if you can picture this, Truman is showing Catherine Graham for the first time the galleys of in cold blood. And he's reading them to her and they're reading to each other on the deck of this yacht. It just was just always struck me as it must have been one of the most amazing moments in literary history. He's revealing for the first time what is coming out in The New Yorker in the fall. And, uh, and that gives you a little clue into the trust that he placed in her and the friendship that was becoming interestingly quite deep. Later, we learn through a short story that is found uh, decades later in the New York Public Library that there's something else that brought the two of them together on that boat. And it uh, appears to have been hashish. 
And that Mrs. Graham, that very dignified Washington, D.C. publisher, Catherine Graham, and the, the writer from New York partake of hashish for the first time and collapse on the deck in a pile of giggles. And Joe, what I think is also fascinating is like, you know, they're on this cruise. And as you note in your story, Mrs. Graham was also, uh, she did not have a husband at this point, right? So there was this sort of maybe a different, deeper relationship between them, right? Yes, I think she is at this point starting to contemplate her new life. She writes later that this was sort of the beginning of the next phase of her life where she is sort of transitioning out of widowhood and starting to think about maybe meeting a man, not waiting to turn the company over to her son when he comes of age, but maybe keeping the company and running it herself. And they bond. This is, I think, probably one of the reasons they were together, were friends for so long is I, I think Truman was was showing her her own strength. That's the impression I get reading about the two of them, that he was in her corner and he was convinced she was destined for greatness and she should put herself out there and that she should not be self-conscious and that she was going to thrive. There's something else that sort of struck me as I watched the series. There's a little, there's a few lines in the first few episodes about Mrs. Paley trying to nudge Truman Capote into moving next door to the Paley's out in Long Island. And of course, Truman never did. He was uh, farther out, far, farther out. But he'd get a neighbor, and that is Catherine Graham. He talked Catherine Graham into buying the apartment just below his in the United Nations Plaza. I picture him sort of pulling Catherine Graham out of Georgetown and giving her confidence and giving her a place in New York where he thought she could really shine. Well, and then, of course, the place where she ultimately was asked to shine, as you detail in your story, is the black and white ball. So take us how that happened and how that sort of transformed Mrs. Graham again. So she, she says that she was visiting, I think it might have been her mother or something, and she gets a call from Truman Capote. He says, I'm, I'm calling because I'm going to throw a party to cheer you up, which uh, took her by surprise, I think, because she didn't need any cheering up and told him so. And he sort of rattled on about this party that was going to be inspired by the Ascot scene that uh, in My Fair Lady, which he always thought was just the best part of the the show. And she sort of wrote it off thinking, well, he's just babbling and it's, it's just having his, his moment. But when they got together for lunch uh, a couple of weeks later, he, he was really started rolling ahead. He had a date. He started mapping out the menu and she realized, oh my God, this is actually going to happen. And she um, just sort of lets him go with it. There's a little bit of dispute. If you read some of the early writing about it, it's sort of the sort of impression that's left is like, oh, well, two things. One is that she was an afterthought and he really meant to, to throw it for one of the swans, but he couldn't decide. And I'm just not buying that. I think when you put it all together, the relationship that had been built over this book, you know, the biggest book of his, of that moment coming out, the move to New York. I think he really was a fan and really thought this is going to be a great moment uh, for her. And so he throws the party. Interestingly, there's a couple things about it is um, the way they structure, the, he structured the parties. He had all the guests and she had a lot of guests. In fact, if you, I've looked at the actual guest book on microfiche at the New York Public Library. And it's sort of in this, like, the format is like a school, like, examination book, a very, very cheap sort of bound notebook. And at the top of it, it says Kay's friends. And so the first two, three pages are all the people that are important to Mrs. Graham. And then later, there's another group around in, like, in the 300s, more people 
that are close to her. The other thing that happens on that night, which I think is fascinating, and talk about being a place where you would want to be a fly on the wall, is Truman had set up this part of the gas, and everybody who RSVP'd yes, he assigned to a cocktail party or a dinner party, like a pre-party somewhere in town. And, he, and so if you go through the notebook, it's actually he's writing down, this person is going to the Paley's, this person is going somewhere else. He and Catherine Graham, they just swung by the Paley apartment and then they went back to the plaza and sort of hung out. And so the prior to the black and white ball, it's just the two of them. You know, he's not parading her around town, wearing her out. They're just collecting their thoughts and having champagne. She ordered chicken from 21. She thought she would surprise him with caviar and she ordered caviar, but she only ordered four ounces. She later writes that this is the first time she ever ordered caviar. So she had no idea and it didn't go very far. To me, that must have been just a great 90 minutes where they kind of collect themselves and, and then head downstairs to the party. And it's also supposedly the first time Mrs. Graham ever wore makeup. Yeah, exactly. You know, as you, as you reveal in your story, you have a theory why Capote never betrayed her and why he remained so loyal and devoted to her. Can you tell us about that? I talked to somebody who was very close to, the, to Mrs. Graham and her take on it was that Catherine Graham was a listener and she was very comfortable listening and she didn't feel like she had to unburden herself. My impression of their relationship is it's different than the dishy relationship, you know, the tell me everything relationship that he cultivated with the swans as a group and individually. And she was happy to listen to him. And so he might have been somebody in his life that he could sort of unburden himself too. There's a letter that's from spring of 1974 that's in the anthology that Gerald Clark edited. And he writes about how he can't wait to get back to New York and he wants to talk to her. He, he said, you're, you're one of my only true friends. This is 74. So this is before the famous uh, article runs in Esquire. And he understands he might be a burden to her. And he just expresses this like, I'm going to be less of a burden. But he expresses like this appreciation that she's there to listen to him. And so I think it might be something that she was just different than the others, didn't feel like he was there to record her every thought and to counsel her or somehow you know, be a, a recorder of her, a place where she could unburden herself. I think don't think that's that entered into the relationship. And that might have been the reason why it survived. You know, he didn't didn't have the goods on her, so to speak, but also maybe she didn't demand that he sit there and listen to her endlessly prattle on. Well, Joe, you've got the goods on the story. And it's been a terrific piece of reporting and, and uh, cultural uh, insight. So we're very grateful to you for being with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. God, Michael, you know, even a man without a heart does have a soft spot. Does have a soft spot as long as you can end up on the yacht of uh, the Agnellis and just be cruising around the Mediterranean with Graham. Michael, I have one word for you. Transactional. Well, yeah, climbing this New York social ladder often is, right? More often than not, indeed. But surely we've got something more optimistic and happier to talk about? I don't know, because on the subject of, I mean, I'm just thinking of transactional relationships and, and uh, social climbing, perhaps social media climbing. We've got Kurt Wagner here with a pretty fascinating story that sheds new light on how Elon Musk acquired Twitter from Jack Dorsey. Every time I think I know this story, it turns out there is another layer that needs to be explored. Kurt Wagner is a journalist from Bloomberg, and he's also the author of Battle for the Bird, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, and the $44 billion fight for Twitter's soul. How's that for a title? Welcome, Kurt. Hi, Kurt. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, Kurt, you've done something that 
many have questioned, but few have dared to do, which is you delved into the mind of Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey, <laughs> and all the characters at Twitter as this takeover happened. So what got you interested in the subject and why did you decide to do a book on it? It's kind of a funny story. I uh, was actually going to do a book about Twitter and Jack Dorsey, and I was out pitching it to publishers. I'd written a whole book proposal about it. And while I'm having those conversations, Elon Musk showed up into the picture and was Twitter's largest shareholder and was trying to join the board. I don't know if you recall how that started. And I was sort of annoyed, to be honest with you, because I was like, well, man, this really throws a wrench into my, you know, Jack Dorsey Twitter book that I'm pitching, but I'll see where it goes. And obviously, I think it was the best thing to happen to the book because it made it significantly more interesting and more compelling. I think it made it a better book because of it. So as you tell it, this unfolds like a narrative out of Twitter. I mean, it's got heightened personalities, heightened emotions. What were some of the most surprising discoveries that you made? What was it like to be there in the room as those conversations were going on? A lot of people just remember like the, the last year and a half of, of intensity with Elon. But before that, Twitter had a lot of issues that were going on well before he arrived. And one of my favorite chapters is actually this chapter about Elliott management coming in and trying to, to kick Jack Dorsey out of his job. And it was covered a little bit at the time, but COVID was also happening in that moment. And so the world was sort of distracted. And so I really enjoyed like getting in and figuring out the the behind the scenes story of the board fighting for Jack's job and going against these, you know, really tough investors who were coming in. And then I think on the Elon front, one of the things that a lot of employees were excited about when he got there was that he's viewed as this product genius. You know, he, he built Tesla and SpaceX into these massive, successful businesses. And I think people were surprised when he showed up and, and didn't really actually have a plan for what he wanted to do at Twitter. And so I thought it was sort of interesting to tell some of those stories from the employee perspectives of them optimistically waiting for this silver bullet that he had to save the company and realizing quite quickly that he didn't actually have a plan in place or, or necessarily know what he was doing all the time. Jack, in, in reading your book and looking at the story you have this week with us, it becomes clear that Jack Dorsey has something of a bromance for Elon. <laughs> yes. You know, because he seems infatuated with celebrities and famous people. But then, you know, you take us through this kind of back channel kind of wooing of Musk, which almost seemed like he, he wanted to give him the company all along. Is that accurate? Or take us through this, please. Yeah. So Jack did have a strong admiration for Elon, is, is what I'll say. And he definitely thought that he was the best person to take over the company. And what you have to know is that Jack Dorsey thought that Twitter should have been a private company for a long time before Elon showed up. He never really thought that it was good that Twitter was public, that they had to deal with Wall Street investors, that they had to do quarterly earnings calls. To him, it didn't feel like what Twitter was supposed to be doing. But once you're a public company, there's only a few ways to not be a public company anymore. And that's either someone comes, acquires you and folds you into, you know, a bigger business or someone's willing to take you private. And they had exhausted all of the acquisition ideas and realized there wasn't really anyone out there to acquire them. And the only people with enough money to take the company private are usually, you know, a private equity firm or as luck would have it for Jack Dorsey, you know, the richest man in the world, Elon Musk. And so I think for him, this was an opportunity to do something he'd wanted Twitter to do for a long time, which was go private. And the the cherry on top was that the guy who was going to do it was this person that he greatly admired and and thought the world of, right? So for him, you could see the, ex the excitement for Jack Dorsey when this seemed like it was going to become a possibility because it was kind of this collision of two things that he really wanted to happen. Do you think Jack Dorsey is stunned at what's happened to this company? I don't think he's stunned because knowing his personality, it's hard to imagine him really being stunned at anything. Like he's just such a chill person that that just doesn't strike me. But 
we know from what he has said publicly since the deal, it definitely went different than he expected, right? There was a quote, he said something along the lines of, it all went south, right? And it's probably the understatement of the century. But I think he knew that this would be a painful experience for employees, right? If you are on the board, which he was, you knew that the company was too big. You knew that they were thinking about doing layoffs, that it was going to sort of be a painful transition. But I don't know if he ever anticipated, uh, certainly the legal dispute that happened over the summer where Elon, you know, tried to back out of the deal. He didn't anticipate, I think, exactly how contentious the takeover would be culturally for Twitter employees um, with Elon coming in and, and really dismantling a lot of the stuff that Jack and his team had built. Kurt, your book is about men that we feel like we know, right? Because they've been reported on so extensively in the press. How did your opinions of Dorsey and Musk change after you'd done all of this reporting? Yeah, I definitely feel a little bit less respect for both of them. Quite frankly, that sounds really maybe harsh or cruel. But when the curtain is peeled back and you get a sense for how these guys operate, you realize it's really imperfect. They're much more human than than I think we oftentimes feel because you see them in the press. They have more money than you could ever imagine. And you just don't always remember that like they're dealing with the same things that all of us are dealing with and, and they're just doing it through a different lens. And so I think like with Elon, for example, you know, I talked about his product stuff. Like th- there was this feeling that he is such a smart guy that he should come and be able to figure this out right away. And the fact that he really hasn't and and not only hasn't figured it out, but like been his own worst enemy for most of the past 18 months has been a really telling thing to me. And so I, I just think I've like, you know, the more you're in this business, as, as you both probably know, and the more that you talk to people who work with like the famous celebrities in our world, the more you just realize that they're human beings and human beings are very flawed. And I think that I felt that way about both Jack and Elon as I kind of went through this process. I think that's a great point. I mean, human beings have a lot of money, which tends to sort of like absolve you or just sort of paper over things. But I mean, I love the detail also you have in there, like after Musk buys Twitter. Yeah, I mean, what does Jack do? He sends him a little text, a private message within minutes saying, thank you with a little heart emoji. So like, yeah. It just is like, what? Billions of dollars <laughs> transaction, like just as, that's how it goes. I mean, it, it makes you think like, who's really running? Like what layer? And, and you, I'm speechless, as you can see. Yeah, I think the text messages that came out, and these came out as part of the legal dispute between Twitter and Elon before he ultimately took over, were super revealing, right? Because they showed that a lot of these people act in the same way that maybe all the rest of us mere mortals do, right? And it also showed just like how kind of quickly and haphazard this this acquisition was, right? It's like you have Elon's ex-wife texting him to be like, hey, I'm mad about the Babylon Bee. You should totally buy Twitter, like LOL. And then the next day he's like on Twitter saying, hey, does there need to be an alternative solution? And within a you know two weeks, he's buying the company. So it's like the things that sort of lead people to make these decisions and how they came together. I think those texts were just really revealing that the rich and powerful people in our society, they kind of are at the same, they make decisions sometimes on a whim in much the same way maybe the rest of us might on a much smaller scale. Kurt, my last question for you is, you know, we know what's next for Elon Musk after the book ends and leaves us, but what about Jack Dorsey? Yeah, he's pretty committed right now to Bitcoin, pretty committed right now to this idea of decentralized social media. So at the risk of getting too in the weeds, you know, imagine a social media platform that's not controlled by any specific company, right? So there's no single point of of control for speech decisions or algorithms or things like that. And it seems to me that at this point, he obviously doesn't need more money. 
He's still running blocks. So, you know, he has a day job, but I get the sense that his focus is very much on those two things. How do we create a digital currency that's not controlled by any central bank? And how do we create a social media environment that's not controlled by any single company? And for him, you know, those are, I don't even want to say pet projects because they're more than that, but I think those are the two things that are probably occupying his most brain power right now. Well, Kurt, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the book. Can't wait to hear more about it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate getting a chance to talk about it. Thanks, Kurt. The book is called Battle for the Bird. It's coming out now. Thanks, Kurt. Okay, Michael, I'm now putting a moratorium on Elon Musk. It's like, you know, the guy is basically driving the entire podcast business. People can't stop talking about him. And now we're just as guilty as the rest of them. You know, I loved everything about the Super Bowl. I don't know if you watch it, Ashley. I like seeing Taylor. I like seeing everyone in the stands. But then they showed Elon Musk. I'm like, ugh, really? That was the one thing I was like, I don't need to see this guy. But other than that, I was one of the people who set the viewing records. But we'll see. I felt like I'd already seen it because I'd seen so much media coverage of Taylor Swift at various chief games that I didn't think there could be anything new added. But it turns out, Michael, it was a great week for sports. It was a great week for sports. And it's probably a natural introduction to our own Bill Keenan, who's got a fantastic look at, you know, how we got to this moment in sports and and looking back at the founding and creation of ESPN, the sports network. Indeed. Bill is... One of those really annoying guys because he does everything well. First of all, he was a professional athlete. He's written books. He's a CEO of Airmail. And he managed to write this great story somewhere out of nowhere. Bill, don't know how you do it. Welcome, Bill Keenan. Thanks for having me. Okay, Bill, when I was reading your great story about the salad days of ESPN, it reminded me of the television equivalent of the Steve Jobs starting Apple computers in his attic. Who are the father and son behind this network and how did it all come together? Yeah, that's a great analogy. It was father, son, it was Scott and Bill Rasmussen in the late 1970s. They were actually both working for the Hartford Whalers. They had pretty solid jobs. And Gordie Howe was was the big player at that time. He had a horrible playoffs and the team ended up losing in the finals. They got swept by the Winnipeg Jets. And so a month after the season, both Bill and Scott get a call from Gordie Howe's wife saying, hey guys, no need to come back next year. Bill Rasmussen was fired from two jobs on the same day. And then within three months, he leased the rights to a transponder, which he didn't even really know what it was. And a year later, he launched ESPN. So I know I should know the answer to this, Bill. What exactly does ESPN even stand for? I should know. Oh, you guys, it's the (laughs) Entertainment Sports Programming Network. Okay. There it is. Are you sure, Michael? Sounds like you just made that up. I am positive. Entertainment Sports Programming Network. And just just to put it in perspective, I looked it up and it's Of course, it's now owned by Disney. It's worth an estimated $24 billion. But before it gets to that, Bill, as you note in your story, you know, the the father and son are sitting there. They've got this transponder. They have no idea what to do with it. And take us through like how how they come up with this idea and then how they basically start to build it and what happens to them. Bill Rasmussen, who at the time when he started ESPN was 45 years old, he had a lengthy career in both sports and media. He had done a lot of broadcasting. He had done ad sales. So he was well-versed in all things sports and media at that time. Now, TV and broadcasting games was very nascent. And so the satellite technology at that time, there were two groups that had satellite rights. Ted Turner, who was a pioneer, and HBO, also another pioneer in the space. After Bill Rasmussen got fired from the Hartford Whalers, he had actually made a connection at the Whalers rink with RCA because they had some space in the Whalers Eastern States Coliseum. 
And he knew that this guy at RCA was working on this new technology and this, this sort of science. It was almost science fiction, the way he describes it. There was something in space and orbiting the Earth. And so Bill was always someone that was ready to take a risk in spite of the fact that he had three kids, two of whom were in college. And so he decided to get more information. He found out that two pretty smart groups, Ted Turner and HBO, had already leased these transponders. And so he said, look, I'm ready to lease a third one. And he didn't have any money to do it. So he took a cash advance on his MasterCard, $9,000. He went to his family. He got another another $30,000 from his family. And that bought him 90 days to then come up with the rest of the $2.6 million that he needed to fulfill this six-year lease is what he had on it. He went with his gut. He knew that this would allow them to broadcast 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so he saw the distribution technology. That's what Scott and Bill talk about. They realized the value, but it wasn't until they were in this car ride on I-84 in the summer of 1978 that they were sort of going back and forth and kind of having an argument and trying to decide what do we put on this? What do we broadcast 24 hours a day, seven days a week? And finally, Scott, who was in the passenger seat, said, Dad, I'm sick of talking about this. You know what? Play football all day for all I care. And that sort of offhand remark was the genesis of ESPN. Now, were these guys football fanatics, Bill, or did they just see a hole in the market? They were sports fanatics. At that time, remember, it wasn't it wasn't the billionaires, hedge funders owning the teams. It was kind of everyday Joe Schmo that it was a very much a local thing because without television and, and the technology that ESPN helped develop, nobody really followed teams outside of their market. So it was more about they loved sports. Bill Rasmussen grew up in Chicago. He was a big White Sox fan. He liked the Bears, all the local college teams. The idea was to provide a growth runway for sports in general. Bill, I think that's an important thing to sort of like remind people of because prior to ESPN, as you know, if you grew up in the Midwest, you saw the Big Ten football games. If you grew up in the South, you saw the SEC. Now, you know, we're in this gigantic multi-billion dollar world of college football where they've all realigned to take advantage of these television deals, these own television networks, which basically them spinning off of what ESPN taught them. So it is this fantastic money machine of that, that, that they, they set the ground for that we're still dealing with here, right? Totally. And it's funny because I remember talking to them about that and just thinking, wow, did you guys have any sense of what you were creating? Because of course, the idea was not necessarily to create multi-billion dollar teams. They realized they were enabling a technology. Now, the flip side, which I always thought was funny, is John Wooden, who at the time was the UCLA legendary basketball coach. So ESPN needed the NCAA's approval because that was their first big partner. And at the time, I believe it was John Wooden was, you know, an outspoken member of the NCAA committee given UCLA's status within it. And Wooden was really against this idea because what he realized is he had a monopoly on all the best California, L.A. talent. And he was worried that if he starts getting exposure and all of a sudden kids in California started seeing Indiana basketball games and Florida basketball games and University of Texas, they'd say, wait a second, I don't have to go to UCLA. I can go to these other schools. So it was interesting. There was a lot of tension that at the time they had to push through because not everybody was for this. 
Bill, when ESPN started, they were covering a much different sort of spate of sports than they're, they're covering today, right? Like, was ESPN sort of a discovery zone for people who are interested in more obscure sports in addition to the obs- more obscure teams that you guys are talking about? Absolutely. It, it's funny because it's kind of come full circle. At the beginning, you know, the first couple of weeks, it was slow pitch softball. There was Greco-Roman wrestling. There was darts. Chris Berman was put on air at about 2 a.m. to broadcast and be the anchor for a darts competition. So at the beginning, it was really a matter of taking what they could get because, as I said, there was a lot of reservations from some of the bigger schools and sports of broadcasting their games because they wanted people to keep showing up to their games. So they were worried, the big basketball programs, that if you showed it on TV, people would just watch it on TV and not show up. So ESPN had a lot of support from these smaller market and and smaller sports that didn't have these big followings because it would provide more visibility. They would get some, you know, NCAA soccer, but it took a while to get the NFL and MLB and NHL. They eventually did. Now you look at it and you think of all the big sports, but but oddly enough, in in recent years, when you think of like the emergence of ESPN2, ESPN3, they sort of come full circle. And now you do start seeing those dog shows and you see spelling bees on ESPN. So they've sort of in a way, gone back to their roots. So, Bill, you went and tracked down Bill Rasmussen, who is 91. And where's he living? Where did you find him? And what does he think about the ESPN of today? Bill Rasmussen is 91. He lives just north of Tampa, and he runs a website, ESPNfounder.com. It's important to remember, he started it. He had this idea in 1978, and literally within a year, ESPN was born and on the air. September 7th, 1979, ESPN launches. A year later... Bill and Scott Rasmussen were out at ESPN because Getty Oil had come in and said, we're clearing house, and they brought in a bunch of executives from NBC Sports. So he will forever be associated with the birth of ESPN, but both Bill and Scott ended up doing a ton more in in their lifetime. Scott specifically began Rasmussen Reports and the Rasmussen Poll, so he certainly reinvented himself, as has Bill. I think they are incredibly proud but this isn't something that defined their lives as much as, you know, creating ESPN is going to define your life to a certain extent. But it's sort of, you know, they they hit the jackpot, but they were out and they moved on. Getty Oil had come in in that 90 day period when they needed money and provided $10 million, which was like gave them the rights to basically do whatever they want. But when they did flex their muscle and they pushed Scott uh, and, his, and his father out, did those guys walk away with anything? It's, as I noticed, now worth $24 billion. Do they have a piece of this or where are they? Yeah. So Bill and Scott needed money and they struck out with seven investors and then Getty Oil, their diversified operations group led by a guy named Stu Evie came in and basically gave them the lifeline that they needed and then some. But with money come handcuffs. And and I think there was always this concept that Evie had that Getty would come in. So the Rasmussen's as a family ended up with about $3.4 million in payout when it was all said and done. As you can imagine, it's a lot of money, and it certainly was a lot of money back then. But as you mentioned, the current valuation of ESPN, it's pennies. One thing they both told me in their own way is that while on the face of it, it feels like they were pushed out, and to a certain extent they were, in order to get ESPN to the next step, like many companies, the founders are there for years T minus one and year zero but they aren't necessarily fit to bring it to the next stage. And so I think they realized that it was kind of in the right hands in order to take the next step and and be able to continue the path that they had started. 
Bill, one of the things I think that's also you like I can remember back to when ESPN's power and dominance was everything. And before social media came in, which was you had to see ESPN Sports Center at 11 o'clock to see the highlights and to know what was going on. Now, of course, you can look at any player's feed and look at social media. So they, they've really lost, as you say, that sort of centrality. And they're sort of going back to maybe carving out things on the side also as these other, you know, Peacock and Amazon start to bid for things as well. So it's, it's interesting to see how it's all emerging, right? Yeah, there's no question that you can be a fan of any sport around the world and follow any team regardless of, of what country they are now. But there is something to be said for the brand that ESPN built because it is premium and it's the definitive source for reliable sports news. And I'll still look at Twitter and all sorts of social media feeds. But ultimately, if I want to know what's most important, ESPN is still you know the, the hallmark for, for sports programming. Well, Bill, I think I have discovered a new fascination for ESPN thanks to this fabulous story. Thank you so much for writing it and for sharing it with us. Thanks, Bill. Well, thank you very much. You know, again, in the hands of a great writer, Michael, any subject becomes interesting, which explains why I now am fascinated with ESPN and I might actually watch it for the first time in my life. Who knew? If you do watch it, I'm going to teach you a little something. Back in the day, everyone knew this. dun on on dun on on That was the theme for Sports Center, and everyone kind of knew it. Every guy at one point went, da na da na It was almost like a version of knowing dung dung for Law & Order. So there you go. Yeah, okay, you totally lost me there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. There's only one place to discover a global snapshot of the current cultural scene. Airmail's Arts Intel Report. Our international research tool for what to do and where and when to do it is user-friendly, continuously updated and meticulously curated. Arts Intel is handy at home, on the road and when you're planning your next trip. It also includes indispensable lists of restaurants and hotels in key cities around the world, recommended by our well-traveled experts. Explore Arts Intel at airmail.news slash arts hyphen intel and be sure to sign up for our weekly culture newsletter, which is published every Wednesday afternoon at ml.news slash WIC. I'm Chris Garrett, ML Deputy Editor, and I never leave home without it. Bon voyage. Okay, it's the weekend, Michael. I know you have some delicious way for us to pass the time. Give it to me. I do. And I was thinking of you. I know you've been getting scared by Jodie Foster in True Detective, but... I have a gentler, more loving side of her that you should check out. Have you seen this film, Nyad, starring Jodie Foster and Annette Bening? No, but the Netflix algorithm has been serving it to me, so I know it's just a matter of time. Okay, good, because as you know, it's streaming on Netflix right now, and it tells the true story of Diane and Nyad, who attempted to swim from Cuba to Florida at age 64. Nyad is played by Annette Bening, and she's been nominated for an Oscar for this. She's fantastic in the role. As is Foster, I think, like you see, Brooke and I both turn each other halfway through the room and it's like, I love Joey Foster. It's a terrific look at sports and obsession. And as someone in their midlife, she's 61 when she attempts this, something that she failed at when she was in her 30s. And it's a terrific film. It's shot for nothing. It's one of these sort of two-handers that probably looks what was made for $5 million. But that's a compliment to it. It's wonderful. It sort of pulls you through the whole time. And it's just one of these great transportive pieces of, of uh, how someone triumphs in life. So it's called Nyad, and it is streaming on Netflix right now. And you, my dear? That is very tempting. I saw the new Jez Butterworth play. It's called The Hills of California. And as you know, Michael, I'm in a theater club. I see a lot of theater. This is the best thing I've seen in years. It was 
First of all, not about California. It's about four sisters who go back to their family home in Blackpool as their mother is dying. And it tells the story of their childhood growing up in this house in Blackpool, which is a coastal town in England. And it tells the story of who they've become in the intervening years. And it was such a beautiful play. The music was incredible. Jazz Butterworth is a writer who's really one of the greatest living playwrights. He did Jerusalem back in 2009, which a lot of people saw and loved. He saw The Ferryman, which happened about five years ago, both in London and New York. It swept the Tonys. This one is ripe for award season as well. So it's called The Hills of California written by Jazz Butterworth, directed by, of course, Sam Mendes. And it's at the Harold Pinter Theater in London. It'll probably be on Broadway soon at some point, but really do not miss it. It stars Laura Donnelly and Leanne Best and lots of really incredible actors. So I just absolutely loved it. In the meantime, thank you all so much for joining us. We love making this show and we love you. Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and I.L. Sanders Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster, and the theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Collect Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. But in the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.